These days, solar energy has gotten really cheap. In certain places, depending on how you crunch the numbers, it can be the cheapest type of energy out there. But it's pretty easy to forget that back in the early days, it was incredibly expensive stuff. Solar in those days was like a religion. You had to believe. This is Arthur Rudin, and he was one of those believers. Even back in the beginning, when solar was so expensive, it was only being put on satellites up in space. I've been in the photovoltaic industry for about 40 years now. Arthur was working for America's first big solar panel manufacturer, a bouncing baby startup called Arco Solar that had been newly acquired by a big oil company. It was new, but it was serious business. And Arthur is a serious business guy. You know, I come from Boston. I'm a conservative guy by nature. Uh, That's the way I was brought up. Now, his job was to move solar modules, get them out the door, sell them preferably. And at one point, he had noticed that one of their sales representatives was doing pretty well. And we asked him, "Where, where are they going? Oh, Northern California. And everyone over at Arco was like, huh? What's going on in Northern California? So they sent Arthur to check it out. What he found was that there was a handful of little shops, mom and pop retailers, that were selling solar panels to just regular old people. People who were paying in cash. People are just pulling up with a fistful of cash and and buying panels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, anybody uh, at that point, there was enough familiarity with um, uh, various cultures that we kind of knew what crops they were growing and where it came from. What crops were they growing? What are we dancing around here? We were fortunate enough to have the ability to uh, grow some weeds so we could afford that would help help pay for things since we didn't have real jobs. And uh, that helped a lot. That pretty much funded it. Yeah, that, that pretty much funded it. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. There is a legend among energy nerds. It's the kind of thing that's whispered to the new guy at the water cooler. You want to know where this business really got its start? It's the sort of thing that, as a reporter, you hear over and over again. According to this legend, California pot growers were instrumental in getting the solar industry off the ground, and that without them, solar wouldn't be as cheap as it is today. So I wanted to find out, where did this legend start? And is it true? Last month, I went to an event called the Solar Pioneers Party. Just to set the scene here, we're at a family-style KOA campground. You know, the kind with a pool, a playground, a little picnic area. And it's in a little town in Northern California, Willits. All the tent and RV sites are completely filled with aging hippies. It's summertime. Within 10 minutes of arriving, I meet a guy who introduces me to another guy. Phil Jurgensen, who offers me something called a Mendo pipe. That notch is a roach clip. 
I had a roach, I could stick it in there. Marketed as the Swiss Army knife of smoking paraphernalia. Okay, so you've taken out like a little pin. Oh, for cleaning the bowl. Okay. And all of these folks, despite their various habits and hobbies, have one connection. That's how I finance my solar habit. Solar power. These are people from all over the West who were selling solar panels to homeowners in the 90s, 80s, some even back in the 70s. And the way this crowd talks about some of these folks, it's downright mythological. These guys are the founding fathers. That's what makes this a special occasion. This is like, you know, a meeting of the Third Congress and of solar. The democratization of power began here. But more to the point, this is Mendocino County, ground zero for the legend that I'm trying to fact check. And in this crowd, the solar power marijuana connection is an article of faith. Like, why do you think that Northern California was thus by? People smoked dope and it made people's minds expand. If your mind's expanded, you're open to new things, and it was a new thing. So how did this work? What were the nuts and bolts of it? Because if it's the 70s and you've got a bunch of money from growing weed, why would you buy a bunch of super expensive solar panels that are basically fresh off the satellites over at NASA? To get the full picture, I want you to hear from Kathleen. It's Kathleen, the Irish spelling. Jarsky Schultz is... J-A-R. Kathleen Jarsky-Schultz is a name that, if you're really into solar power in the 80s, would be super familiar to you. L-T-Z-E. Before Kathleen was a household name for people in the solar industry, she was just like anybody else living in the city. I was a psychiatric technician, and there were, like, I could go six months without stepping on dirt. I've thought about this, you know, there were whole points in my life where all I did was walk on asphalt, sidewalk, or or linoleum floors in a hospital. But Kathleen's life looks very different now. And it all started with Bobbo. It really, it all started for me. I met my husband through the mail, snail mail. A friend of, that was a friend to both of us got him writing to me. And we wrote back and forth, and then he said, come and visit me. And I said, you live in the middle of nowhere. And he said, yeah, kind of, but come visit me anyway. So I did, and we got snowed in for a week, and then I never left. And that was 32 years ago. Kathleen's new boyfriend and eventual husband was part of what would come to be known as the Back to the Land movement. He was a hippie, and part of the counterculture was a rejection of the way everyone else lived their lives. And he was living on microhydro, off-grid in this cabin so far back that there were no phones. The only communication was CB radio and ham radio. The first time I spoke to him, really, because we didn't know each other. First time I spoke to him was over a ham radio where you had to say over after everything you said. This house got electricity from a tiny little hydropower turbine about the size of a lunchbox dropped into a river out back. That charged a couple of 12-volt car batteries. It's a very hands-on life. 
if your water doesn't come out of the faucet, you go out and find out why and you fix that. And if your lights don't turn on, you find out why and you fix that. And it's, you know, if your house is cold, you go out and you get some wood that you've split, cut, stacked. You know, I caress every piece of firewood seven times before it gets to the stove. You know, it's, it's a hands-on life and it's a good one. Because of their experience living in this house out in the middle of nowhere, lit up by a tiny, cobbled-together electric system, Kathleen and husband Babo were able to get jobs writing for Home Power magazine, which was like a pre-internet internet forum. It was full of letters from people who had written in saying, hey, here's what I did. Here's how I get electricity. Here's how I wired my lights. And it was geared towards folks who were trying to live like they were. It was called the Hands-On Journal of Home Power. So it's sort of like, um, you know, bubblegum, bailing wire, and soldering irons. We called it Clujing. Yeah, Dr. Cluge, yeah. And it was those articles about kludgy, homemade, off-grid homes that made Kathleen famous among energy nerds. Because there was serious demand for solutions for these homesteads. We didn't really have power. We had kerosene lights. and uh, we had, what, What's that like? It, was, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't all that bright, you know. <laughs> it was very romantic. Johnny Hill ran a place called the Earth Store that sold supplies to off-grid homesteaders. But um, but then when you figured how much kerosene smoke you've been breathing over the years, it probably wasn't all that good for you either. People like John were a perfect fit for solar panels. Their homes were incredibly far from everything. Putting up a power line to each remote house would be crazy expensive. And they were so used to living in dimly lit homes and taking cold showers that they didn't really need to have much power. I, my introduction to solar was um, a guy named Sam walked in one day and uh, brought in a little um, little solar panel, about a foot square, and said, uh, you know, you should really sell these in your store. And I went, what's that? And he said, well, it's a solar panel, and, uh, and you can hook it up to a battery, and then you can have lights. And since kerosene was like my biggest selling item in the store, I thought, oh, that's really going to be bad for kerosene sales. And and it really kind of was. This was the initial market for some sort of off-grid power solution, something easier to deal with than a generator, something simple that you could maintain on your own. But for this legend about the early days of solar power to be true, this would have to be a pretty big market. And really, how many people were there who were willing to suffer out there taking cold showers in tiny handmade off-grid cabins? The answer? Kind of a lot. Well, um, there was a guy named Bob McKee who had bought all this logging land in um, Mendocino and Humboldt County and logged over land, and he was dividing it up into patent 40-acre parcels. They weren't even legal, really. And, like, when I moved there, he said, well, you can, it's $16,000 for 40 acres, and you can pay it off over 10 years or 12 years or 20 years, whatever you want to do. And if you don't have a down payment, you can start next year. You can just grow some marijuana and then pay me later. Wait, he and, said that? Uh, no, I don't think so. But that's what everybody, that's what, what was happening. 
This is Dave Katz. White hair, white beard, smiley eyes, looks a little bit like a lot of the other aging hippies at the Solar Pioneer Party. And there was about, when I moved there, there was about 3,000 people living on 40-acre parcels, if you can picture it was becoming a 40-acre suburbia where this guy was selling 40-acre parcels to everybody and none of them had electricity. But Dave has done very well for himself. He rolled up to the campground in a Tesla Model X. That's the SUV with the doors that open like a DeLorean. It's money he made selling solar panels. My joke is everybody else is growing pot, and I got to, instead of me becoming a gold miner like everybody else, I got to become the guy selling the shovels to the gold miners. And I was selling power systems to all the people who could afford it because pot paid 5000 a pound and you could pay $12 a watt for solar. So it was just a lucky break to be in the right place at the right time. Today, thanks to the efficiencies of mass manufacturing, solar power is down to less than $1 per watt, more than 12 times less. And this, people like Dave Katz argue, was made possible by these early adopters and paid for by illegal marijuana sales. Outside In will be back after a break. We're going to start back up with Art Rudin, the Arco Solar guy. If Dave is making bank selling shovels at retail, Art is the shovel manufacturer who's making and selling shovels in bulk. He's an East Coast businessman, and his initial customers are nothing like these West Coast hippies. In fact, the first solar customers were the oil and gas industry. All off-grid. Everything was off-grid. Initially, it was oil and gas. Because we were part of Atlantic Richfield, a big oil company, they said, hey, go out to the platforms, help us out. We don't have power out there. So that, along with oil pipelines, became the cornerstone of our business. So when he starts to notice all these people buying solar panels in Northern California, he has no idea what's going on. And so we decided, well, there's a big enough business here. We should go and explore. One of the people he got in touch with was Dave Katz. And what he saw was astonishing. Off-grid homesteading hippies walking into stores and paying cash for these incredibly expensive solar panels that up until this point weren't really selling to ordinary consumers. What I really want to hear the story yeah. of like your first day in Willits. <laughs> like like you show up. I didn't really know what to make of the whole thing because you know, I come from Boston, I'm a conservative guy by nature, and I'm with these people who look different, dress different than I do in a three-piece suit, certainly, but yet they have the same values. Now I had to think about how am I going to tell the people back at corporate how the products are being used. What Arthur told them was that the panels were being used for remote, off-grid homes, for water pumping, for organic agriculture. It's kind of like how head shops always refer to bongs as water pipes and have to insist that they're selling paraphernalia for smoking tobacco. So then it doesn't matter why you need to pump water. Right. It's the fact that you need water. And people need water everywhere in the world. Do, do you think that the people higher up in the corporate chain knew what was going on in Northern California? Oh, I'm sure they did. Sure. Yeah. But again, it was easy enough to look the other way because that was only one part of the business. So there's no doubt 
that California's pot growers were big customers in the early days of solar. But were they big enough to prop up the industry? Well, here's a little business 101. When you launch a new technology, if you're lucky, you can score funding for the initial research. And once you're ready to take it to the masses, you can find investors who will back you up. But in between, there's a wide gulf. There's a phrase that people use for this time, the valley of death. It's often used to describe uh, the pain of um, lack of money. In this period, you've got to spend lots of money. You've got to buy stuff. Equipment. Build stuff. Factory facilities. Hire people. Training programs. It's the period where most startups die. There's very little um, money coming in from the sale of product and a lot of money going out. They just never figure out their business. So you're the proverbial trailblazer at the head of a trail that oftentimes others that follow behind you will be stepping over you as you've fallen with your face in the mud and an arrow in your back. That voice you're hearing is Charlie Gay, someone who had a pretty good vantage point on this period from inside the solar industry and who now works for the Department of Energy. I was the head of manufacturing research and engineering for Arco Solar. He says solar got through the valley of death by starting with places that would be very, very expensive to power using the grid. For instance, space. When Russia launched Sputnik, it only had a couple of batteries. And the U.S. differentiated itself when they launched the Vanguard satellite in uh, March of 1958. It had solar power, and it kept that satellite going for years after it was launched, unlike the Sputnik, which ran out of juice after a few weeks in space. Solar then moved to Earth. It started with things like really, really remote microwave repeater towers, those little dishes that send radio or telephone or television data through the air across line of sight instead of using wires. Charlie heard a story from an East Coast academic who took his family on this oddly colonial vacation in Papua New Guinea, staying with an isolated indigenous community. Traveling by jeep for a day, traveling on horseback for uh, two or maybe three days it was, and then uh, taking a, um, a, a rowboat upriver for four days. A bunch of kids swam out to their boat when they arrived. And as the kids pulled themselves up on the gunnels of the boat, they all had Arco Solar t-shirts on. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we had been there and done that. After the isolated microwave repeater towers in places like Papua New Guinea, they moved to foghorns and warning lights on oil rigs and protecting oil pipelines. Then they slowly started to power remote water pumping on isolated ranches. It wasn't until later, like the late 80s and into the 90s, that off-grid homes started to be a really major market. So let's remember the question we set out to answer. Is the modern solar industry something that exists thanks to backwoods hippies in Northern California kludging together their solar homes with bubblegum, bailing wire, and soldering irons? Were they one of those crucial steps along the way that drove the price of solar from $12 a watt to less than a dollar a watt? David Katz, the guy who found Arthur Rudin's three-piece suit so funny, certainly thinks so. Because people were growing marijuana, they could afford... Solar panels had cost $12 a watt at the beginning, 
so it made it grow. They were the ones who really enabled rooftop solar to get a foothold. But the consensus from the people with the 30,000-foot view was that this was really just one of the markets that manufacturers were selling to. Would Arco have continued to exist if this boom in Northern California had never happened? My guess is yes, it would have. The majority of my career in industry, up until perhaps the past five years, more than half my time was spent outside of America. So that is to say, perhaps folks who, who believe this Northern California market where it was crucial are being a little America-centric. Yeah, you know, we all love to take poetic license and, and uh, <laughs> pride in, you know, our, our contribution. And I don't want to take anything away from an incredibly meaningful part of helping popularize solar in America. Now, it might be that the raw number of panels sold to the back-to-the-landers in Northern California was quite small, but had an outsized effect on the direction of the market. And as a matter of fact, off-grid homes did eventually become a big part of the U.S. solar industry's business. By 1996, they made up about a third of the solar panels that were out there. And you can argue that it was thanks to these early adopters who figured out how to wire up a solar home. But regardless of whether the actual sales in Northern California were make or break for the industry, I think we got something else from this period. It's where we get the association between solar power and, quote, backwoods hippies, unquote. Just think, why would solar power be associated with radicals, revolutionaries, alternative types, any more than, say, kerosene? I think it's because, for years, these folks were the face of solar power. And that managed to seep its way into the collective consciousness. But now, solar has started to leave that association behind, mostly because of the price. You don't have to be a believer anymore. It's not a religion. For an increasing number of businesses and individuals, it's just good economics. In the words of Kathleen Jarsky-Schultz... There's two kinds of people who want solar. People who've never had it and people who want more. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Taylor Quimby, Hannah McCarthy, Maureen McMurray, Justine Paradise, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Special thanks to Jeff Spies, who organized the Solar Pioneers Party and introduced me to many of its cast of characters, and to Stephen Lacey of Green Tech Media, who introduced me to Jeff, and whose podcast, The Energy Gang, is one of the places where I first heard the legend that got us started on this episode. If you happen to be on the internet, you can find us there, too. Weird, right? We're on social media as Outside In Radio, and our website, where you can find charming pictures of old-timey solar panels, is OutsideInRadio.org. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, and Jason Leonard. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you.